This is episode 69 of Freers in Freedom. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And this is Free as in Freedom. Karen, we're interrupting our regularly scheduled programming. Is our programming really regularly scheduled? <laughs> well, it hasn't been recently, but uh, there's an interesting thing going on that we've uh, decided to insert uh, another episode in the sequence uh, to, I guess, be almost current with current events. <laughs> Yeah, it's I, I've always liked when we cover things that happen in the news. And um, and one of the things that has happened recently is a particularly poignant example of some of the things that we talk about in free and open source software quite often. So uh, so uh, the end of last month, uh, Microsoft announced that they're ending their ebook platform uh, and their ebook store. So you can no longer uh, get uh, copies of ebooks for the Microsoft ebook devices. But Bradley, that's no problem, right? Because if I have an ebook and I have my books and I, I've got them you know, on my devices, and I'm, you know, I've, I'm all set up. I, I guess it's a, a bummer I can't get new books, but what's the problem? Well, so, uh, so unfortunately, almost all content and media today is somehow restricted so that you can't have it permanently. Uh, in fact, this is true not just with, uh, with the ebook platforms, but with the video platforms. If you uh, pre-download a video with Netflix, you only get a certain amount of time. And if you don't connect to a network again, the recording expires. That's terrible. Well, that's... <laughs> and this is... So, so, um, so uh, Seth Schoen uh, from uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, who's done a lot of work in this area and was, was one of the key people working on it when uh, digital restrictions management was on the rise, uh, DRM, uh, as it's often abbreviated, uh, pointed out that, that we were headed towards an era where uh, DRM was ubiquitous and, uh, and inevitable. And basically, the, the problem is, is that when everything seems to be going okay, uh, people don't notice that digital restrictions management is in play. So they don't notice that, notice that their files expire because uh, you can just click one button if you network connect, uh, for example, with Netflix and renew your downloaded recording. So people don't really register that they've lost a particular thing until something like this happens when a platform and and uh, you know some sort of repository disappears yeah and it's connected to all of the things that we compromise about over and over and over again every day that we don't really think about because our providers make it so easy for us to agree to all kinds of things so i think that um, a study showed that the average user would have to spend three months doing nothing but reading terms of service full time in order to understand, in order to, to read all of the, the agreements that the average person clicks through for just normal everyday life. Um, and so part of these agreements that, so people are just kind of immune now to agreeing to all kinds of things without really thinking about what it is that they're agreeing to, because it's impossible to read all of the terms of service anyway, 
And even if they had the time to read them, most people aren't lawyers. They might not understand a large portion of the terms. And so there's sort of a helplessness about it and a resignation that, well, if I want to use the thing, I just have to hit OK. And that plays out in many different ways and agreeing to DRM and accepting it and limiting the use of the things that of the, the content, if it's an ebook or um, whatever it is that you're trying to do is becoming quite common and in fact expected. Yeah. And, and the, the, the difficulty is, is that when, as I mentioned, when things are going well, it seems as if, uh, nothing's really wrong. But when just a minor thing goes wrong, for example, with the Netflix example, when you don't connect to a network for a few weeks on the device, if you're if you're traveling somewhere that's uh, not network connect, that you can't get network or, or otherwise it's too expensive, if you're traveling outside the country, those sorts of things, uh, you, you just suddenly can't uh, view these video files. And it's not that it needs to stream it again. There's a copy of this, like with the ebooks. Ebooks are actually very small. They, every time you look at a new ebook, it downloads immediately to your device, but it's locked up with uh, a cryptographic digital key. And the rules of how that cryptography can be opened are set by the company that usually the company that you either got the device or that controls the app that you're using. I'm confused, actually, about your Netflix example. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I just, uh, I, I actually don't know what are the restrictions within Netflix. Cause I so so with it. Netflix, uh, so Netflix is, is similar to, to many of these other platforms. On uh, Netflix, you usually, uh, can, you can obviously stream video and, and you have to be connected to a network to that. But you can pre-download video uh, for offline viewing. Uh, with oh. Netflix, uh, but it's it's DRM'd. So uh, some shows, oh. some shows you just can't download. So some shows will tell you we forbid you from downloading this particular title, which is a form of DRM in itself. But even the ones you can download, they have uh, they have a timeout, uh, and if you go past the time. Uh, it, it disappears. In fact, this doesn't just happen with Netflix. This happens with your local library. Sadly, when you borrow digital media from your local library, you have to use a DRM platform. So if you you can't like I we used to be when I was a kid you could go into uh, in this I suppose showing my age you could go in and borrow uh, video cassettes just like you could from a Blockbuster now Blockbuster for most of our listeners that was a place where you could rent movies that used to exist but libraries also used to allow you to do that the public library would have video cassettes of of films and instructional videos that you could go and borrow at the library uh, and then you would yeah, borrow a, oh sorry. And you could watch it, um, and and there was no DRM. You could technically copy uh, the thing when you had it. The, they had cassettes and albums, uh, you know, record albums, you know, the things with the little needles that you put on. You could go and borrow those at the library. And later, when CDs and DVDs uh, became standard, you could borrow those at your local library. Uh, most local libraries in the United States don't even have the option to borrow CDs and DVDs anymore. Generally speaking, you can only borrow things via digital DRM platforms from your library, including ebooks, by the way. That's fascinating. I, to be honest, I've I never really used a library in that way. Um, but uh, but I I did back in the day use Blockbuster, and I note that it, I I laughed so hard in the Captain Marvel movie uh, where she crashes into a Blockbuster and immediately sets the whole movie in the nineties because that's when there was Blockbuster. Uh, I think there's still one in 
Oregon near you. Is that right? Uh, not near me. Uh, and oh, it's, it's not there's near one, you? And, and, and that one closed, I think. There's one in Alaska still, I believe, is the last one. But I can't remember. Oh, no, I guess there oh. is one in Oregon. Those last ones in Oregon. I thought the, I thought I read an article about the last one was in Oregon. Yeah, the one in Alaska um, And it's closed. like totally alive and healthy. <laughs> um, but uh, but mostly that's from tourism. Uh, but because uh, like tourists go to this place to um, to see it. But uh, anyway, it's it's um, so the so the 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 issue is that that as we move to digital media, the the things that were permitted with regular books, uh, such as being able to read it more than once, um, being able to loan it to somebody else, being able to give it to somebody else permanently. Uh, being able to photocopy it, all these sorts of things are disappearing uh, and your permissions to do them are disappearing, including permissions uh, that were uh, protected by court decisions. So if you look at things like um, time shifting and space shifting, which were uh, proven to be permissible under copyright, uh, you can't actually do them with DRM. So here's a great example with the Netflix situation. You you can only space shift uh, and time shift a little bit because some of the shows you can download and save uh, and some of them you can't. And the worst part about it is that when you do that, uh, if you do that space shifting in way and time shifting that aren't allowed, it's actually suddenly illegal again which is just completely bizarre given that it was supposed to be legal. And the way that it's illegal is, well, there are a variety of ways. Part of it is the the terms of service. Part of it is that it's very difficult to access the material. Um, but uh, but you can but use then, the analog hole, right? As, as, as it's always been called. So you can, you, you can resample digital content with analog means because, you know, analog is just like using your eyes and ears. So you just have another device that's like your eyes and ears and re-records it. So, so you can use the analog hole, which will always exist. But when, what happens when you use that analog hole, Karen? So, right. So, um, so under the, un, it, so the, where this is a pretty U.S. focused episode, I should say, um, because there are analogs to these this analysis and these rules and regulations elsewhere. Unfortunately, the U.S. has been a leader with um, DRM and with uh, maximalist copyright, and a lot of other countries have followed. Um, but uh, but specifically, what you're alluding to, Bradley, is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Um, and what the DMCA says, especially Section 1201, is that it's um, if a um, if a provider has put in a uh, technological protection measure, so if they put in encryption or a password or something that um, that basically limits your access, and you circumvent that measure, then um, then it runs afoul of the DMCA, and the um, the liability under the DMCA is is pretty severe and could include criminal liability. So that is a very, um, a really harsh law. And, um, and it means that even if you're, even if you would have the right to um, do all of the things that you mentioned before, that are, are within our, our, normal safe harbor exemptions from copyright law, that that's not good enough. Because once you're circumventing the technological protection measure, you're, you're running afoul of 1201. So, so you're saying that even so if I have one, if I'm using this Microsoft Edge thing to read ebooks, and I want to save the ebooks, which are all DRM'd, 
and I find some mechanism to circumvent and get them off that, you know, give them off and be able to keep them as just regular, you know, undrm EPUBs. You're saying that under DMCA isn't permissible. I can't do that kind of circumvention. That's right. Not unless there's an exemption. And so folks that listen, um, have been listening to a long time to our podcast know that, um, that this is an issue that we've been concerned with for some time. Um, Conservancy. So every three years, there's a process that um, that the um, that uh, happens with respect to the DMCA, where folks can request exemptions um, from the rule for particular um, use cases. And uh, Conservancy submitted successfully an exemption for smart TVs. And then I was one of a few researchers who participated in. Um, in a, an exception for medical devices, which was also granted. And so if you file for these exemptions, and there are a number of organizations that have been doing this, and it's been fascinating to have that whole experience to see who opposes it, and then also to sort of see the evolution of the whole process, because it's a it's a every three-year process. Um, so seeing how, uh, how that's evolved has been really, really interesting. Um, and luckily, we've been able to carve out some territory um, where um, – you know, where having this circumvention is deemed to be necessary in certain cases, like, for example, with medical devices, having the ability to um, research their safety and efficacy um, is one thing that uh, that the DMCA would have prevented in the case that there were um, te- <laughs> there were technological protection measures on these devices, which many of them do not have, which is also its own totally separate and deeply disturbing issue. Well, I mean, the, the, so, so, I mean, I think it's, it's good, but these exemptions, when you apply for them, you have to do it in event. You have to think ahead. Like you can't. So for example, if there was no exemption for ebook devices or for this Microsoft edge thing, which I, I suspect there was not, uh, I, it's not like I can, uh, I, I assume it's not like I can go get that exemption. Like, like when I found out in April that my ebooks were disappearing, could I go get an exemption and have it by July when the books expired? So it is a, a, a process that happens at, uh, on a three-year process, and you have to reply during the window. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why organizations like Conservancy are out there trying to file for the exemptions when they come up, so that when people realize they have a need, the exemption is already in place. And it really underscores the, I mean, I think that's what you're saying, is that it really underscores why we need these exemptions and why the DMCA is so dangerous in this way. And in fact, why DRM is so so dangerous, because it, it takes us out of control of our own technology. Well, and, and, and the thing is, is the, is the thing that bothers me about it is this, this idea of, um, of, of, our archaeological archive, right? There's there's the story of of Caesar burning the Library of Alexandria as part as a way to, uh, you know, one conquering uh, the ancient world, uh, destroying knowledge was uh, you know taking people's knowledge away was was a weapon uh, that that the Romans used uh, to to basically uh, to dominate uh, the ancient world, and this is really big for profit companies literally taking knowledge away from us taking books away from us now it's not that they're uh it's not that they're taking the only copy away but as it's becoming harder and harder to find books uh you know particularly books that are somewhat out of print uh, on paper that you can only get them in ebook uh we're getting digital archives of materials 
that uh, that expire that, that that for no good reason expire and and is uh, you know I mean Microsoft in this case it's just a matter of a couple of years that they went from having an ebook repository to having absolutely none and all the books expiring. Um, any company is going to eventually go away if we look thousands of years in the future, and they're the holders of these digital keys. And and as we see with Microsoft, it's not like Microsoft released the digital keys and said, here, let's unlock all your books so you have them going forward. They said, we're going to delete them and give you your money back. So, so you know, they're going to they're give you money in exchange for giving up your access to knowledge, which I find really yeah. just disturbing. And And also the time that you spent collecting the you know deciding what to read finding access to these books it's just it's 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 it, you know what i what's interesting about it is that because it's books and because it's personal and because people had access to them it is the perfect example of why drm can be so dangerous and why ceding control to single sources like these companies is a is so deeply problematic because you can wind up in a situation like this and and quite easily companies are you know through no you know through no ill will even you know wind up going out of business or um, didn't have good practices internally about keeping their own data and so you know there are myriad ways in which all of your you know all of this information could could be be gone you know i i have a um, a good friend um uh, Jesse Chan Norris who talks about a um how you have a, uh, you know, you, we used to have shoeboxes with all of our important memories in them. They had our pictures, they had our, um, all of our, our most personal things. And now those are all online. And so while the shoebox was vulnerable to a fire or a flood or being lost, um, if you were careful with it, if you made sure you had it where, you know, where you need it, it would always exist. But if you're, information is digital, it is subject to so many other uh, vigors. It's this, this hilarious thing where once something is uh, is posted online, you have to be prepared for it to never go away. But at the same time, unless you have your own copy and are um, sure to back it up, it is likely that um, that it will disappear and you'll never be able to find it again. And so it's a it's this curious situation that we have now about the way that we interact with our you know with media in general, whether it's our own personal um, you know photographs or whether it's content like books or or something else. So we're in this just this really weird situation, and this ebook situation just I think brings it all home because it's not just our books that we're doing this with. It's basically it's it's so many things that we are we're seeing. Like for example, um, I know so many people who only listen to music on Spotify, so they don't own any of the music that they listen to. Which means that if Spotify were to decide that certain musicians were worth listening to and other musicians weren't, or if there was some reason why. Um, the entity controlling Spotify would want to have some kind of censorship or some kind of control, we would have the Spotify listeners would have no recourse. And in fact, all of that music that they had loved that was a part of their cultural identity could be gone. 
Yeah, and Microsoft uh, uh, to use them as as an example of of a, of a sadly a trailblazer DRM. Um, they were the first to make an audio player with DRM. Um, so there was this decision that that uh, actually Apple had made, which was which it's gone back on at this point, um, but was not going to put DRM into the original iPod. Uh, I think Apple does Apple does have DRM at least for their own software, if not for media as well now as well. Um, but but Microsoft decided that that they were uh, for this period of time in the late 90s and early 2000s, Microsoft worked really hard to woo the the media companies, the RIA and the MPAA, um, to to be you know to be the choice technology. Uh, people remember the stuff about Silverlight and uh, how you couldn't watch Netflix on without Silverlight. That was because Microsoft had made this deal that they were going to promise to deliver good DRM. Uh, to these companies and and had been been able to get almost a monopoly for a while on DRM technologies and so they did it for audio as well and they had this product called the Zune um, it was spelled uh, Z U N E um, Zulu Uniform November Echo uh, and this product was an audio player and it had DRM in it so you could only share music with a friend the only wireless technology it had was you could do this thing called squirting you could squirt your audio to a friend yeah it's called squirt that's what they called it they said you could squirt your music to another person over this wireless connection and then it would um, expire on the other person's device in a few days so you could give that your friends samples of the audio you were listening to but it was drm'd on their side and it would disappear after a couple of days um and that product uh, i i remember there was a running joke on um on another actually dan lynch uh, our, our producer his old podcast they had a running joke about how the 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 market price of zunes at one point the zunes were like three dollars each <laughs> because no one wanted them um as they disappeared but of course if you had drm audio on zune it disappeared as well. Um, now, the Zoom didn't have much market share at the time, so it wasn't covered the way that this ebook situation has been covered in the press as much, uh, but it was the exact same situation. So this is not the first time Microsoft has deprecated a product and taken away uh, taken away audio from people. So uh, yeah, we're taking, we're taking away media from people, I should say. You mentioned Apple, and it's ringing distant bells. I think actually with Apple, I think they originally, like the iTunes store famously had DRM, and then eMusic came in, and consumers... We're so happy to not have DRM that uh, that eMusic or or other platforms were getting Correct. people to shift over yeah. to them, and then Apple famously removed DRM from their from the iTunes store. I don't know where they went to from there. I know that a lot of their stuff is locked down, of course. Right. Yeah. Um, and and, they, and, so, and so they were they were uh, again they were for it before they were against it, and then they were against it again. Well, it's um, funny because I thought that was like the you know. I, I thought that meant that our future was assured, right? I was so excited that iTunes got rid of DRM. I thought that was a sign that consumers were not having any of it anymore. But what's interesting is that, unfortunately, I think what it was was that Apple was just too ahead of their time and that they that consumers still had the idea that they needed to own their own music. And so they were offended by the idea of DRM, but now they need it. So basically the, the, with the Spotify model where, um, where users are even further separated from their content, they've sort of had an adjustment in paradigm where now folks are willing to accept, you know, way less control over their, um, their media. Right. And, and just to give the, I, I, I sort of, uh, I, 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 I glossed over the long history with Apple. Yeah. So you're correct. Apple had DRM 
initially, um, there was a backlash, and because uh, the you know the, at the time the iPod was the primary platform people were using for music and audio, um, Apple was able, I guess, to to uh, to be consumer friendly, but, but, and, and become non DRM. But I mean, this is the classic thing that happens with Apple. People always talk about, well, Apple's all for the user's rights. Well, not necessarily because they went back to do once the heat was off and nobody was asking about DRM and iTunes was no longer the, the, the dominant uh, and only platform. Uh, they returned to DRM. And in fact, they've fought many lawsuits uh, to keep things DRM. They've been sued for antitrust violations and so forth to, to remove their DRM from uh, which they call of all thing <laughs> talk about orwellian phrases they call it fair play um is their drm system uh and, and it's now in all the apple devices for both their software and all their media so it's so apple is just as bad as anyone else and if folks were listening to recent news um apple is doing the same thing google is with and amazon with collecting audio from uh from siri uh on apple platform so this idea that that apple somehow is pro-consumer and therefore is going to be against drm and against uh privacy Violations and so forth is is just is just a marketing message from Apple and and so I not to pick only on Microsoft Apple is just as bad in this regard uh, the only the only guarantee you have is the Apple platforms are less likely to go away than the Microsoft ones so at least the platform won't go away but that doesn't mean your content can't time out and expire and we do have that example of of books being revoked uh, that happened on the Amazon platform uh, and has happened many other cases where your book that you purchase can just be the keys can be revoked at any time. And, uh, and your permission to view it can be revoked at any time. Yeah, and I think that this is they capitalize on the fact that consumers are very short sighted. Like, we're not thinking about what we want in six months or a year or even three to five years or longer. And I think these are the same issues with respect to software freedom, where it's they're they're longer term issues. And companies know that consumers, if you want to listen to a song, you want to listen to it now. It's highly theoretical that something could happen, you know, six months, a year down the road. And why should you even care about that? And so I think that what's interesting about this is I think we're going to have more of these situations where the decisions that we've made with respect to these technology choices, uh, you know, come come back to haunt us. And, and we're going to see it again. And this is one of the reasons why that it's so valuable to fight for software freedom and for ethical technology because we need to start thinking longer term, but I don't think that people will do that until there are serious failures. So we need to be ready when there are those failures so that we can show people that there's a better path. So Karen, in the, in the next segment, let's talk more about how this actually relates directly to software freedom, which is our issue of focus. Uh, and also, I'd like to talk a little bit more about how it relates to other uh important social justice issues like planned obsolescence and, and electronic recycling. Sounds good. So we sort of started bringing this back to software freedom. Um, the issues around here, around, there are a tremendous number of issues that come up with any of these issues around technology that affect people's personal lives. Um, but our focus is on software freedom. So you wanted to talk a little bit about that, right? So uh, so the, the, the interesting thing and the reason why, uh, uh, other than the reasons we already talked about, the reasons why the software freedom activists were so concerned about DRM is it's basically more or less impossible to implement a DRM system with, with free software. 
uh, while it does use cryptography to get things done, um, it's pretty hard uh, to, uh, to, to do uh, this kind of broad encryption and decryption controls uh, in various different places uh, with, uh, with, uh, with free software. A great example is the, the questions with uh, DVDs. People might have heard about how occasionally the, uh, the, the master key for DVDs would get cracked. Well, the, the reason why was because every DVD player and every DVD has to interact cryptographically. <laughs> so it's, it's hard to handle update of keys without, without obscuring the software. Um, now, as the internet becomes ubiquitous, uh, this solves that, uh, for, quote, solve, unquote, in, in terms of the DRM question, because if you have to be network connected, um, it's very easy to change all the keys on a machine and all these sorts of things, which is what I, I suppose many of these DRM companies are doing, although we, can't, we don't know what they're doing, and we can't even analyze it because it's proprietary software, which also, by the way, is impacted by DMCA uh, questions. So you, if you reverse engineer the proprietary software that does the DRM to figure out how it works uh, and, and figure out what it's doing, uh, you may well be violating the DMCA as well and be committing a felony just to, just to do that. Yeah, the um, the rules um, around the DMCA are, uh, are are really outrageous, and the burden that it places on all of these organizations that apply for exemptions is quite high. And so the discussion now that um, that we are all um, and and some other or other organizations are really leading the charge on this is having um, having the discussions with the Library of Congress. Um, and and others to basically say that it's a it's it's completely unreasonable the way that the um, the exemption process works now um, and that we need to um, that they need to be more cognizant of the fact that it's this burden to put an exemption is is just way too high. I mean, most of the or many of the um, the organizations asking for exemptions are like law school clinics, so they're students and often the um, triennial exemption process happens um, on a on a process that's not 100% aligned with the academic semester. So it's all just a complete disaster. Yeah, I, and unfortunately, I don't think the, the that because the change of the rules will require legislative change. Um, and it seems unlikely that we're going to get legislative change in this issue, given the amount the the media companies control uh, the you know the the, the lobbying efforts uh, in in Congress. Uh, so, but and, and this is a case where it doesn't matter what your political background is. In the United States, both parties are heavily funded by the media industries and heavily lobbied by the media industries. And and this is why things like the the Digital Millennium Copyright Act got got passed with basically universal support <laughs> from from both parties uh, because uh, both parties here in the United States. Yes, we have a Sadly, we have a two-party system here in the U.S., uh, folks who are outside the U.S., but, but in this case, there's no party you can go to to say, oh, that you're, you know, let's fight your opposition on this, that both parties are completely basically corrupt on this issue and, and happy to do whatever the media companies want. And, and they're basically legislating the necessity of proprietary software because it's not, it's not possible um, to have a DRM system with, with, with free software, you know, to have the freedom to modify and change your software and have it do different things. Well, uh, the classic example is if, if, yeah, so even if, so, so let's consider, cause, cause I'm sure people will write in, uh, I'm going to get a little bit technical here. Um, but many of our listeners are pretty technical. Uh, it's, it's certainly possible to design a public key cryptography system that uses free software to do DRM. I, I'm not saying that it's not, it's not, it's, 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 it's not, 
technically possible to do that. The issue is, is that that they don't care so much about like locking it down on the drive. It's when you have to view it, you have to decrypt it at some point to watch it or listen to it or read it. And the problem is, is that with free software exploiting the, what I called uh, before I mentioned the analog hole, which is once it's being presented to your eyes and ears, uh, you can use whatever mechanism it pr- uses to present to your eyes and ears to resample it. Now, you don't get a perfect copy uh, in those cases, usually. You have to resample it somehow. But because digital quality and content is so good, like displays, here's a great example. Displays are such high resolution now. If you resample the stream of be it a, an ebook or a video or audio coming off to the digital out to the to the output the analog output device be it the display or the or the audio card if you just sample that uh, you get a, a very high quality copy uh, it's not perfect but it's a lot better than a photocopier would have been back in the back in the 70s so from that point of view if you have free software that implements DRM it's easily circumventable and so that's why they can't abide by having free software to view content. That's why the Netflix client will never be free software. It's why ebook readers uh, will never be free software, et cetera, because they need the proprietary software to bolster the DRM system and to close the analog hole as, as well as they can. Uh, it's, it can never truly be closed, but, but it, it can be closed enough such that they make it incredibly difficult. Yeah, uh, just to go back on one little thing that you said, which is that I do think that some changes have been made to help the exemption process, um, certainly to make the process a little bit easier. But that's a really small, minor side issue. I just wanted to. But yeah, it's, it's, in, a, it's I, an administrative I, question, right? I mean, I mean, the Library of Congress probably has the power to do administrative changes, but they don't have the power to change the law. And but the but but I think I want to underscore. I agree with you and underscore the point that that basically. A DRM or anything that takes our technology completely out of our control is unconscionable. And most of our listeners have surely heard my um, my story about my own heart condition and about my defibrillator that I have that um, that I can't see the source code to. And the situation where I was shocked when I was pregnant, um, and it was a clear situation of the companies not having you know any malicious intent. Device manufacturers definitely don't want pregnant women getting shocked. It's so clear, right? But um, but they just didn't have my use case in mind. Um, you know, very few people under the age of 65 have defibrillators. Um, and of them, a, a tiny percentage would be pregnant. And only 25% of pregnant women, which is a huge percent, 25 to 50% of pregnant women have palpitations like I did. But it's clear that the manufacturer had not anticipated my use case, right? And as all of this technology gets used more broadly, it's clear that companies won't be able to anticipate every single use case with their technology. And as we have the technology for a long period of time, as we've seen with the Microsoft situation, um, you know, when folks bought their books, they never dreamt that um, that that their eBooks would no longer be available to them. That um, that Microsoft would choose to um, discontinue the store. But companies make decisions like these all the time. And it's not just our ebooks, and it's not just our defibrillators. It's it's everything we rely on, and it's all about control. And this is where software freedom comes in, because if we don't have access to change the software on our critical de- or on any of our devices, we are basically at the whims of these companies. And it's not anyone's fault. It's not like these corporations are evil. They're just pursuing their own profits as they're supposed to. 
They are marketing products that they think will sell. And when those products are no longer likely to sell, they'll take them off the market. And over time, they'll take support for those products off the market, which means that we're, we're completely up a creek. But if we have access to the source code, if we have our source code and we have the ability to install new software on these devices, we'll, we'll have a whole nother level of digital autonomy, of control over our own destiny. And I think that is the most important thing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I one of the one of the unfortunate things that happens, uh, and I think this is basically happening with the medical devices area, um, is uh, people have complained about the lack of security in medical devices, and then the answer to lack of security, as it was with the content industries, is DRM. So this idea that that instead of instead of fixing the problem, they're saying, well, if we implement DRM on 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 your medical devices, that will assure security, give give the manufacturer complete control over how the medical devices works and how you can access it, and that will somehow solve the problem the way they claimed it would solve the problem for for digital uh, you know, media content. And I mean, I'm I'm pretty concerned about the idea that that at some point the the yeah, are are they going to just turn pacemakers off for you? Like if like if you don't pay your pacemaker licensing fee, are they just going to say well you didn't pay your fee, so you have to you have to turn it off? I mean, we're already at the point now where they're charging a million dollars for treatment for for kids that are going to die in the U.S. So maybe they'll just charge an ongoing fee with a DRM pacemaker. I realize that sounds really dystopian. But there, there's nothing legally preventing it, really, <laughs> as far as... Uh, far yeah, as I mean, we are in many ways living in this really terrible dystopia. And, and a lot of it stems from our willingness to cede control. Now, in the pacemaker context, you know, it's very complicated because consumers are not necessarily the patients. Um, it's the doctors who are making the decisions about what pacemakers people get, what defibrillators people get. Um, and patients sort of are, are relying on their doctors to make those purchase decisions. And so the companies are catering to the market of doctors, not catering to the market of patients. But we need to shine light on all of these things so that we can stand up and say, how, this is completely unconscionable. How can we have arrived in this state? Like we, we need to be able to fix problems when they arise. I should be able to choose whatever medical professional that I want to help me with my pacemaker defibrillator. If I want someone to reevaluate whether or not, you know, I, sh I should be able to go to a company that's an expert in if I'm pregnant to in, in, in defibrillators for pregnant women, if I want, I shouldn't have to rely on just the one manufacturer. Vendor lock-in is particularly dangerous when it comes to medical devices, but it's just a metaphor for all of the technology we rely on. Yeah, and and while while I you know while I I, I take your point that you know it's the company's job to have profit, I, I don't I don't think. I don't believe in unbridled capitalism. I, I sat next to a um, insurance salesperson on an airplane uh, about a year ago, uh, and uh, I uh, he started complaining about the uh, Affordable Care Act, the ACA, often called Obamacare. And I said, "Well, it's it's hard to argue against pre-existing conditions." And his answer was, "Someone getting in medical insurance and then asking for a pre-existing to be uh, pre-existing condition to be covered is exactly the same," he said, "as someone getting into an auto accident without insurance and then asking the auto insurer to cover it." 
Um, so this is the way these I'm, people think, right? I'm this, speechless. It's terrible. And I agree yeah. with you. I mean, and, I think and he said this, sweeping you know, regulation. In that earshot of everybody on the plane, that, that, that he basically believed people deserved to die if they didn't, they weren't able to afford insurance before they got whatever condition they need coverage for. Uh, and this is how, this is how capitalists think, right? And so, I think I think that we I think we should have a healthy dose of of, of we don't care if you can make money right the, the 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 people making money are not in this case going back to the main DRM media question it's not the artists it's not like the artists are doing better than they were uh, because uh, because of DRM the, the 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 middle people are trying to keep themselves in business so all these companies that produce content the reason they push DRM so hard was because they didn't know how to be a middle person without DRM because the internet created a scenario where you didn't need as many middle people. Uh, you used to need somebody to build a factory to press CDs and DVDs or, or, or dub tapes in mass so you could sell them. That's not an industry that's needed anymore. And so, and so we're at a moment where DRM is, is just a technological crutch to keep up an industry that we don't necessarily need anymore. Yeah, I would argue that that the middleman argument, it, it's more complex than that. I, I, but I don't want to, this is a whole nother mm -hmm. uh, episode about what possible revenue models well, are. I still... I and and I and I I don't necessarily I don't don't disagree with you especially about the analysis about the or your just your feeling about that uh, that sales that insurance salesman that's really terrible but I do think that most people think that they're doing good things and I do think that most people you know in most of the individuals at the companies are not out to make other people's lives worse it's just that they don't have their the role of companies is not to look after is not to safeguard public interests at all and it, and, and so they and they won't and so what we what i think we need is sweeping regulation we need it on all different areas um we need to be able to have access to our source code that needs to be from a software freedom perspective but we also need it from a um you know we also need to be legisl we need legislation that's going to protect us from terms of service that no one can read and yep. um, and also the exploitation of our data. We need uh, just a a really like overarching. I I I would never have said this a couple of years ago, but after having seen GDPR come in and be successful, I think that it's possible for us to have legislation that protects us in a in a actual real way, which I never really thought before. I think GDPR is a nice step, but it's a small step, and we can. We, we, we can do it. I, I just don't think there's any other way that we're going to get there because com companies are not going to um, are not going to do it on their own, in part because consumers will constantly click and agree to these terrible terms to the DRM because they just want to listen to that song or read that ebook today. Yeah, and and I think I think as as you and I are big fans of individual action, um, there are individual action actions that that authors can take. Uh, now, if you, if you're if you're putting it on an Apple device uh, at this point, everything on Apple is DRM'd: the software, the music, the um, the the ebooks, e etc. Uh, so there's not much you can do when you deploy to Apple device. The other most common uh, device these days is, is Android, which is uh, which is uh, an open source platform that is usually delivered to you proprietary, and the uh, application 
applications uh, that run, not as opposed to the operating system, are all proprietary from Google. Um, Google has DRM on by default uh, for eBooks, but uh, I'll link to this in the show notes. There is a tutorial on the Google support site that explains how you can turn off uh, the DRM that's on by default um, for your book that you put on the Google Play Store. Uh, and I encourage anybody who's publishing a book on Google Play to turn that off uh, and and do do an interesting experiment. See see how well it sells on because you're probably going to sell it both on Apple uh, and on on the uh, on the Play Store. Uh, turn off DRM on the Play Store. It'll be on by default on Apple and see. Uh, which one sells more? Uh, you know, see how how well it does if if it still sells. It's my belief that generally people pay uh, for the content if it's an easy thing to do. And admittedly, these app stores make it easy, so there's no reason to leave the DRM on. Uh, it's not like you're going to get you know multiple sales from the same person. You're just going to frustrate the user if they have to buy it on every device. Uh, you'd be much better off uh, turning off the DRM. And frankly, with the analog hole there, people who want to <laughs> to do things without paying for it are going to find a way to use the analog hole. It, it, it's hard to do with many of these platforms, but it's never impossible. The analog hole is never impossible. So there's no point in, um, in, in turning on DRM. So I'll link to that in the show notes. Anybody who puts a book, uh, an ebook on, I hope you'll turn off uh, DRM on the Google play store because at least they allow that, uh, which is nice. Of, well, I wish Google didn't support DRM at all. They would be better if they did not, uh, at least they allow you to turn it off, which, which of course Apple doesn't. So, um, so I encourage people to do that. Uh, and, and Karen, uh, we should also ask, uh, while well, we're talking about supporting authors, um, there's other things people can support as well, right? Other types of content, for example, that people can support. <laughs> All right, I guess it's my time to shill, um, which is that uh, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to hear more, please support Vine and Bradley's work at the Software Freedom Conservancy. Um, become a supporter of our organization. We, uh, we would deeply appreciate it. And you can do that by going to sfconservancy.org. Slash donate and uh, or slash supporter to become a supporter, and uh, and and we're I think we're a great example of the uh, of the way new media can happen. We're we're a charity that takes donations. You don't have to give us a donation if you can't afford to when you listen to this podcast. Uh, but if you give a donation, you continue to get this DRM free. Uh, content uh, of us uh, talking about, in this case, DRM itself. Uh, and so I hope you'll become a supporter of the Software Freedom Conservancy to continue to support my and Karen's work, uh, advocacy on this issue and the many other software freedom issues that Karen and I work as activists every day uh, to support. Uh, in the next episode, we will return to our regularly scheduled content, uh, and uh, and we we had promised a show where we talk about uh, uh, talk about uh, is, is some of the interesting things that came out of our recording with uh, Molly DeBlanc uh, as a, as a as an audience member, and so we will pick up with that in our next episode. Thanks for listening. Free as in freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of danlynch.org. That's D-A-N-L-Y-N-C-H dot O-R-G. The Free is in Freedom theme music was written by Mike Tarantino and is performed by Mike Tarantino with Charlie Paxton on drums. You can learn more about our work at the Software Freedom Conservancy at the website sfconservancy.org. Conservancy is a 501c3 charity and is supported by your donations. An RSS feed for this show is available from faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot U-S. All episodes of Free is in Freedom 
are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. So Karen, what are we going to talk about on this show? 